This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Hello, everyone. Hi, Jonathan. One Hi, of Yoni. us is on vacation. We're not going to say who, but the one wearing the red <laughs> trousers and T-shirt that says, I'm cool. Uh, no, I'm really, this is not what you're wearing. I'm just making this up. Very definitely not wearing that. But yes, imagine us, uh, or imagine me anyway, somewhere soaking up the sun and being on holiday, as I would say. That is how you find us. Right. No, how you find you, because one of us is still doing the news during the month of August. So sorry, I'm but... so laid back now that I just assume everybody is on vacation. It's unfair but since... of me. Since Jonathan is on vacation, we will do what we do on this podcast, uh, which is to uh, bring you or remind you of some of our our favorite conversations, the ones that kind of stayed with us uh, and resonated with us that we wanted you to maybe uh, have another opportunity to listen into. And we begin with really one of the standout guests we've had on the show. I think we definitely we both agree, but I think our listeners would agree. Editor-in-chief of the New Yorker magazine, journalistic legend, and crucially for the conversation we had, former Moscow correspondent David Remnick. Um, I mean, it's amazing, David, because he's been the editor of this, you know, the world's most storied magazine for decades, but had this whole other life as a really eminent correspondent in Moscow and then wrote a fantastic book, Lenin's Tomb, about the last years of the Soviet Empire. And the reason and the timing was interesting because we spoke to him, didn't we, just before on the eve of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We knew it was coming and both of us thought the man we want to hear from is David Remnick. Yes. And, uh, you know, I think that what he says, even though a few months have passed, obviously is so relevant to Putin's thinking and his, you know, logic. And I think that is what is interesting in the conversation. Obviously, a lot of talk also, uh, Jonathan, I remind you about the politics, state of politics in the United States and in Israel. He says he's very concerned about both. He calls the state of uh, American politics a prolonged emergency. And of course, doing what we tend to do here on the podcast, we dragged him to talk about his Jewish uh, childhood. And uh, he said something about not being a bagel and locks Jew, but taking it very seriously. He said, it's not a joke for me. You know, I, I deal with these things very deeply. And I think that is part of this really interesting conversation that we had with him. I'm quite excited by our very special guest on the podcast. Yes, it took us, what, a year to bring him on? Um, and, It took us a year, but he has been a devoted listener to our podcast, which is why that adds an extra uh, delight to having him on as our main guest. So it will be David Rubnick, the uh, editor of The New Yorker, the... Um, best publication in the English language. I hope I'm not insulting other publications in the English language. Uh, and we have so much to talk about. You know, he is a Russian expert and we want to talk about Russia, but we want to talk about a lot of other things about Israel and the US and uh, the Jewish world and uh, and the New Yorker itself. Uh, I think we have a lot to talk about. David Remnick, I think probably the, one of the most highly regarded journalists in the world. And my formulation is that the New Yorker is the uh, premier weekly magazine in the world, thereby passing no judgment on other perhaps <laughs> daily newspapers. Uh, but yeah, a huge privilege to have David Remnick on Unholy. David, we are so honoured and uh, happy that you're on Unholy. I'm delighted to be here. You're a loyal listener. <laughs> 
<laughs> and we're so glad uh, to hear that. We will quiz you at the end of our conversation about yeah, our different I, episodes. I, I, and I would pass. I, I think have you to will. Say. I think you will. Um, yeah. I, we want to talk. I, I want to kind of start out with talking uh, uh, to you about Russia. Obviously, I, I don't know if you'll shy away from this title, but you are a true Russian expert. Uh, you were, uh, as I said, the Moscow correspondent at the age of 29, I believe, and you all follow Russia to this day extremely closely. You wrote recently in The New Yorker uh, a piece titled uh, Putin's War Game. And you write of the Russian president, increasingly he has become the philosopher and enforcer of the authoritarian rule. To what end, David? Like, to put it quite plainly, what does Putin want? Well, what does Putin want? You know, like Freud said, what do men want? I, I, <laughs> I, Vladimir Putin is posing himself, and for many years now already, as the clear-eyed realist of the way the world works. And his entire rhetoric is around how hypocritical the West is how hypocritical liberalism is, how um, the, the West, and particularly the United States, is, poses itself as a liberal society. Look at all the problems they have, whether it's poverty, income inequality, uh, and they're a social mess. He's a social conservative. You know, he, he makes fun of the notion of gender fluidity, for example, uh, much less homosexuality. There's disdain for that that's open. He is posing himself as a kind of um, uh, social conservative against a West that's gone way too far toward decadence. That's one thing. And he has made it plain that he his predecessors were far too weak in the face of uh, Western triumphalism following the period of 1989 to 1991, which is when I happened to live in Moscow, that the whole business of Francis Fukuyama and um, uh, all the social arrangements of the world are now settled into a kind of uh, liberalism to him is baloney. He is the ultimate um, man of interests. And what you're seeing now on the Ukrainian border, whether he invades or not, is an attempt to reassert Russian power, Russian greatness, um, and and I he has managed to establish an image for himself uh, all over the world as the ultimate competent leader, even though Russia, in fact, is quite poor, um, and it's you know if you think there are oligarchies in the West, well, you know you've never been to Moscow, so that's just the the beginning sketch of it. it what interests me is first of all that you managed to get through that answer without making the Freudian slip that I often make. And I've even noticed in, a, in an earlier interview years ago that you did, you did it too, which is you didn't describe it as Soviet or you didn't talk about the Soviet tradition or something like that there. Um, well, it's been, it's been, it's a, long been a long time. time. It's been a long time since yeah, Soviet. Except though, I, you know, people sometimes do it where they were talking about the Russia, they, they move seamlessly to the Soviet Union. And the yeah, but Jonathan, here's the one thing that Vladimir Putin never cared a damn about is communist ideology. You know, the people in the West were obsessed with communist ideology, communism, Bolshevism, and all the rest. Ideology died to such a degree that even in the Brezhnev era, people didn't take it terribly seriously. Putin is, is, is an extraordinarily, uh, I hate to use the word gifted to give it a positive spin, but he, in, on his own terms, he's, he's quite gifted, but he's constructed something that is 
not necessarily lasting, which is to say a kind of um, plutocracy or oligarchy, as, you, as people describe it, that's centered on him and his, his mortality, his existence. Everything funnels through him at the, at the top. Um, so, you know, one hears, for example, that there are Russian generals at, at serious ranks who think it is the height of craziness to think about invading Ukraine for all kinds of reasons, military reasons, uh, uh, domestic uh, economic reasons, and so on. But there's no telling, um, there's no accounting for the feedback system, the normal feedback system of, of Russian politics, because it all takes place inside of one square foot, which is the head of Vladimir Putin, which, and he loves this. You know, the interesting thing, we're looking at it from the outside, and everyone is is using this traditional war jargon, right? It's like missiles and tanks and soldiers and invasion. All this is, of course, uh, qu- consequential. But if Putin is anything, is is he's proven to be so sophisticated in the way he operates, right? In cyber warfare, in poisoning his political opponents, right? He has a lot to do with what happened in the U.S. in 2016, a lot to do with what happened in the U.K. in 2016 with, with Brexit. Why do we think necessarily that the only thing he can do to Ukraine is traditional war? He can do all kinds of oh, things. I don't think we, we do. I think that mm-hmm. we're, we're fully aware that his capacities inc- include all kinds of weapons. And, and the, at the very top of his military intelligence apparatus are people who are expert in what's, what we've now come to be accustomed to calling asymmetrical warfare. It's not lost on Putin that even in in the face of NATO writ writ large or the United States that he's not, doesn't have superior forces, but he he marshals them quite cleverly. And I think the West's reaction this time around, as opposed to 2014, is a determination to not be, you know, won't get fooled again, as the old song goes, that, that what happened with Crimea was a surprise, took the West by surprise. Took, you know, it, one day there, <laughs> Crimea was was um, was Ukrainian, and the next day there were the so-called remember the the little green men, yeah. the unmarked soldiers that everybody in in Russia pretend we have no idea who these people are. Maybe they got the uniforms <laughs> fact, from a fancy dress store. I think exactly, or the Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles, or somebody you know from from that have a green background, and then. And then within a matter of days, it was very clear who it was, and uh, the population was marshaled in, in such a way to keep it quiet. U- Ukraine is extremely poor, um, and it was accomplished. And so, of course, he has other weapons. He, he could easily uh, try to declare victory through means other than, you know, sending missiles and tanks into into Kiev. You know, I'm struck by your observation about it's all about the one square foot of Putin's brain because much of the commentary des- describes, you know, Russia wants this, Russia wants that. And the thing that's missing, I think, from a lot of the coverage is what Russians want. We know what he wants. That's, but do, that's the whole... Right. But, but from your, your <laughs> sense of it, what do you think... Uh, is there any Russian, as opposed to Putin, appetite for the grand sphere of influence for Ukraine itself, for the kind of imperial reach that the Soviet period, the Tsarist period entailed for Russia, do ordinary Russians Mm. still have those needs and wants that Putin very cleverly plays to? Or is this really him? Not in a cartoonish way, no. Um, I think most 
Russians, like most human beings, crave fairness, stability, economic well-being, the security of their children, health care, all those kinds of things. I don't think Russians wake up in the morning and think about the reestablishment of the Russian Empire or the Soviet Empire. But remember a, a crucial difference here. As chaotic and as screwed up as our own information systems are in Britain or the United States or, or Israel or wherever, because for all the factors that we know, it, it is immensely different in Russia that, that discourse, to use that fancy uh, word of the moment, discourse is, is so distorted by the Russian government's control o- over so much media, particularly television, which is so dominant. And it, it's very much harder matter to uh, control the internet, but even so-called liberal uh, outlets uh, in Russia like Medusa, um, uh, which is a terrific online uh, outlet or a television station called Dosht, which means rain, TV rain. Um, they have had now, now are branded by order of the government as, as foreign agents. And that puts a crimp in your day too. So the, the amount of control of uh, information in Russia is really hard for us to understand and, and immensely more sof- sophisticated than the period when I was there. Immensely you watch Russian propaganda TV a lot, right? Do I David? watch it? Like, that, that's your guilty pleasure, isn't it? You watch well, up Russian to a, propaganda up to a point. It's you know, it's it's different than watching cooking videos, but yes, I do watch it. It's very important to do so to, to try to understand it. Forget for look for a Russia expert. I'm, I, I, that's hard for me to ex- brand myself because I, I haven't lived there in a long time, and I watch on TV, you know, people going on and on about what Putin's going to do and what he's not going to do. It's really important. I think for journalists to say when they don't know what's going to happen. And I, I get really tired of watching people on morning chat shows and news and op-eds. Putin's going to do this. Putin thinks this. This is just, this is just a, it's bullshit sometimes. We don't, we have to know what we don't know and, and admit it. And if you, you're going to ask me, is Putin going to invade? I do not know. And that should be a starting point of the conversation. And, and that is something that he really seems to uh, relish. The, the, so, the putting off balance of the world, the notion that he's this kind of uh, omniscient uh, chess strategist. So let's talk about something that you won't get on much of the coverage elsewhere. I want to ask you and talk about Jewish attitudes to Russia. My yeah. question is, did Jews have a very strange, given that one way and another we all came from Russia, um, do we have a strange sort Ashkenazi of Ashkenazi Jews? Of it, think, do we have a blind a, spot there? Look, I think a lot of immigrants have a complicated, willful forgetfulness about there. It's not just Jews who emigrated from Russia. Um, look, look at the math and the history is 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 horrendous. Um, I am sitting here talking with you because a couple of Jewish peasants decided to maybe get out a little early 
my relatives were in uh, Vilna, which became Vilnius, which is part of the Russian Empire, and they managed to get to the West in the early part of the century. My other grandfather, Ukraine, you know, very typical arriving in the, in the United States in that period between 1895 and, say, 1910-15. That's, that's the bulk of American Jewry. And I don't think most of us certainly don't think of ourselves as Russian um, think of yourselves as, as you know, from Jewish emigration from, from, from there. It's a very different thing. I don't think of myself as Russian. So word on the street is indeed that you are Jewish. I'm, I've been talking. <laughs> how does that, I mean, I'm sorry if this is a silly question. How does that manifest itself? Oh, my God. In, I, 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 how life? can it not? We can, we, didn't, we can add an extra hour for this podcast. Don't worry. I, you know, I, I did not grow up in a... Jewish town, but I grew up in the Jewish community of those towns. I went to public schools, and I, you know, if if they were five percent Jewish, it was a lot. But on Monday afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, Saturday and Sunday, off to what was called Hebrew school, it was very different from an Israeli existence, you know. And New York, and I, and I live in New York, which is an anomalous city in terms of Jewish population, and. Um, as saturated as I am with, you know, American history and, and, and literature, I, I also read deeply as much as I can in, in, in Jewish civilization. This is my inheritance. How can I reject it? I, you know, I see my, uh, you know, black friends, you know, Henry Louis Gates, I just interviewed for a, an interview uh, um, issue that we've done online, and th- this interview will come out on Sunday. And here's Skip Gates from... West Virginia, from the tiny black community in Piedmont, West Virginia, and he ends up at Yale, and he's introduced to, on the one hand, you know, the canon of what was then completely white American literature, but he wants to read, at the same time, African and African American literature. And how do these two become part of your canon? That, you know, that that search uh, and saturation doesn't end. So that's one thing. And also, as, as a reporter... Um, it's not by accident that I've gone to two places abroad quite often. Uh, Russia, where I lived for four years, and then I went back and forth there a lot, and, and, to, and to the Middle East, and particularly to Israel, and which you know is a, a source of uh, complication and pain and joy and, um, and real concern. See, to you, so I, think about, I, w- I, I would think say... About it a lot. Sorry. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, go ahead. No, to you it would be, and to me too, actually, it was automatic and obvious. As you said, it's no coincidence. Of course, if you're strongly Jewish, you're going to be going back and forth to Israel. It's going to be in your head, even in the complicated way you've alluded to there. Do you look at the next generation of American Jews and see a similar automatic connection that one entails the other? Tell us about that. No, and that's a source of great concern to me, and I think it would be a source of great concern to you, Neat, and, uh, and Israelis, I think, but some Israelis that I hear from, in fact, obstinately think it's no concern at all. I, I live in a kind of mixed Jewish existence in the sense that my wife's family is modern Orthodox, and some of them live in Israel. And they're, let's just say that their views, I don't want to caricature them, are, are distinctly more right-leaning than my own. Um, I'm a much more secular Jew, um, and grew up, you know, in, in the way I described, 
I, with semi-knowledge, you know, not a lot of it, but I'm not just a locks and bagels, you know, ha, you know, jokes Jew. It's something that's very serious and permeates um, my thinking and reading and concerns and, and, and all the rest. And I am deeply concerned about the present situation, not only in my own country, deeply concerned, but also about Israel. I think, I think um, each in their own way face um, historical and moral dilemmas and, and crises that um, we risk shoving under the rug for the sake of today's seeming stability. And I think we know what we're talking about here. And I, I worry that particularly the secular, more secular Jews in America, younger generation, see Israel, and this is going to be a painful thing, but it's not a new thing for any, any of us to hear, as, as a source not of pride or uh, uh, affection, but of embarrassment. And um, <sighs> of embarrassment because of the obvious, because of the, the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And some of the young are very knowledgeable about it, and some are not. But it is, it is a source of, I think that there are a lot of secular Jews that kind of, younger ones, uh, that, to put it mildly, don't have any special affection for Israel, and just the opposite. And I worry about that. And I, I remember seeing when, um, you know, talking to an Israeli diplomat on the right, um, who we all know, and his disdain for Obama was powerful. And you felt this among the, the, throughout the Netanyahu uh, uh, group. And it was especially focused on the notion that he, quote, unquote, he has no, he has no kishkas for us. He has no, he has no affection for us, which in fact was utterly wrong. In fact, Obama had real concern about Israel but it was the, you know, the Israel that he related to was the Israel of a diminishing left of the David Grossman, you know, Amos world Israel. of Tel Aviv, as it were. Hmm. Um, and I remember writing a piece, a long piece on Haaretz. And not just because it was a newspaper, but because it was, it was representative of a... Um, forgive me, maybe I'm wrong, but I think a diminishing uh, Israeli liberal culture that's highly centered in not only Tel Aviv, but for the, as it were, Tel Aviv. And, you know, uh, and knew a lot of people there and, 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 and so on. But it, I wanted to write about it as an, as an entity and also what it represented because you can't, I wasn't just only going to come write about the right, which I also have. And I heard from Obama about this and you know he wanted to and he already knew but he 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 was concerned because to him Haaretz represented the kind of south side of Chicago uh milieu of Jews that he knew well and his his you know is he was gravely concerned that that was diminishing and of course he's right he's right does the Bennett Lapid government changed that in a way, even a little bit. I mean, the fact that really, I mean, there's a diverse coalition and an Arab party, and you know, all these kinds of things that sound good for and better for a liberal ear. Not at all. I mean, you wrote about Naftali Bennett extensively. 
This doesn't surprise you, as like a centralization. Say, as they say in Scoop, only up to a point, Lord Copper. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I think. Look, Net- Netanyahu represented a, a level of obstinance and uh, also deception too. This occasional, you know, rhetoric where uh, to, to please usually periodic U.S. presidents that they, he was interested in solving the Palestinian problem, but he had no. Int- as we now know, that was. Really, he was uh, not at all sincere ab- about this. Naftali <laughs> Bennett himself is, has changed a bit. And yes, this is a mixed government. And I think that there are people that are slightly encouraged that, uh, that Netanyahu is, at least for the moment, gone. Um. But the underlying conditions and the and the what we read about every day and um, the Palestinian situation is is not a hell of a lot different. It's just not, and and nobody sees any way out. And in fact, what we see is nobody really caring very much, including post Trump administration, including some Arab states who, in the height of realpolitik, have. Um, for all kinds of reasons, um, shove the Palestinian question to the side in favor of forming closer relations to Israel, um, which may be stabilizing in some ways, but it certainly leaves the Palestinian people um, in a fix. And in terms of the echo you saw and you mentioned there between the two countries, the dangers that you alerted us to just a second ago in both countries. I'm not going to ask you which one you think is, you know, going to get to that endpoint first, because that's <laughs> silly. But I'm, I'm interested on, on, on what the, the warning bells, the warning alarms you've been sounding about America. You have gone, and I think it's been extra shocking because you're, you know, you're not a hot-headed guy. You're a very temp, temperate guy. And yet you've been writing through the Trump period and even since as if, the whole thing is in meaning American democracy is potentially in jeopardy uh, and in peril. I think it's and, an emergency. I, yeah. I, I think I, I think it's an, a prolonged emergency. In other words, I never thought Donald Trump. This is very funny. Uh, you know, those of us who grew, grew up in New York and read Spy Magazine and the New York Post, he was a figure on the jokescape of New York. He was like Leona Helmsley uh, or... <laughs> page six kind of, kind of thing. Page six clownish figures in the New York, uh, 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 you know, uh, lineup. Yeah. But no, he, he, my great-grandmother, um, <laughs> um, who was married to what I call the, the, the last Jewish Adolf, um, uh, <laughs> was in, <laughs> they lived in, in Coney Island in Trump housing. And... Um, and, you know, the old man would release these balloons over the beach in Coney Island and the balloons would pop and you'd get a $15 discount on your apartment. These, these, were, these were scam artists, racist scam artists, and who made it kind of big in a glitzy way in New York. But I, I have thought from the first that he was an emergency. And I, you know, on election night, I was at one of those parties you go to because I wasn't kind of working. We had all our Hillary Clinton pieces lined up and ready to go for the first woman president, da-da-da-da. To be sure, she is not this, but 
Okay. So all those pieces were lined up to be released on the web at, you know, the moment, you know, Ohio was called or whatever the hell it would be. And of course, by about nine something, it was obvious this was, we were in trouble. So from a journalistic point of view, I happily had my laptop, went into this person's kitchen and wrote furiously a piece that was, you're right, far less temperate than I'm usually accustomed to. And it was called An American Tragedy. And it was unbelievably pessimistic about Trump. And the, the real fault of that piece, it wasn't nearly, it, it, it didn't possess nearly enough um, dark imagination to match what the realities would be. How insane the next four years would be. How, how malicious, how malevolent they would be. And the legacy they've left, I think, is even worse, even if he's never elected again. What if he is? In 2024. I, I, can we not go there? <laughs> I, but, it's a real, but it's a real concern. You're, you're 100% right, need. I mean, he, he, he could be. He could be. Joe Biden is, is not in a strong position. Um, people are elected. I, I remember George H.W. Bush, who was a reasonably popular president, and there was a kind of downward glitch in the economy, and there was also a third-party candidate, Ross Perot, and that helped Bill Clinton win. It's not because Bill Clinton was some unbelievable political mm-hmm. magician. The conditions were right at a certain time. Shit happens, and it happened. It could break that way because you have a country that's just in a distorted um, state of mind, a large part of it. Um, we don't trust elections anymore. You know, I live in a country that too often has a weird notion of itself as exceptional in so many ways and permanent, as if, as if political systems are permanent, as, as if reasonably good times are permanent. And one of the things that happened in the mid-60s is that for the first time, for the first time in, in, in this constitutional democracy, we had the chance of having a multi-ethnic democracy, which is to say you had voting rights and Civil Rights Act were passed, but it is, it is entirely conceivable for all the factors you know about voting, about, about the direction of the Republican Party, about many other factors, that that could be short-lived. And do I expect there to be a civil war with people in gray uniforms and blue uniforms in Antietam and, you know, a replica of the mid-19th century? No, I don't. But look, but politics and the destiny of a country can turn very, very quickly. In the late 80s, early 90s, look at Israel. Things were going quite well. In, 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 and then you started to have this kind of um, counter-revolution and, and the Netanyahu campaign and the, the incitement of, 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 of a community. That assassination of Rabin did not come out of nowhere. I'm not saying millions pulled the trigger. I, I, that guy pulled the trigger. You, you go, I mean, Amir pulled the trigger. But, and the repercussions of that assassination in Israel are immense. My concern is that January 6th, which had precursors in things like the McVeigh bombing in Oklahoma City, and the rise of uh, white nationalist politics and militias and the normalization of that kind of political dialogue and political culture is unbelievably corrosive and could lead us to bad places. I'm not saying we're going to resemble somewhere else, but the notion that somehow 
history is just one giant curve upward is 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 a fairy tale. So I didn't you know didn't mean to come bum you out, but I don't think I'm delivering any special news. <laughs> I just want to say that the mood was changed because of Jonathan. It is his problem. Yeah. No, okay. Just to put the blame where it should be. Um, can, can, can I ask about, as a paying subscriber, can I ask a little bit about The New Yorker? Is that okay? I, I think I'm entitled having trouble to open, ask. Are you a, having trouble opening the subscription on your end? I'm is waiting for okay? my tote bag. Like, that's, I swear to God, pe- people will send me emails and say, you know, I'm having trouble and... I, and I, I get on it. I get on it. I'm a full service editor. I want to hear the top man. I want to see the top man. That's another very Jewish thing, right? Exactly. Let me complain to the exactly. top man. Get me the manager. Exactly. Exactly. Same moi. So as the manager, as the manager, I mean, you, and you've been the manager for 24 years. Yeah, don't tell editor, anybody. As editor. I mean, you have managed to preserve the New Yorker as this, you know, symbol of excellence it really goes against the trends in, in media, right? I mean, there are the 10,000-word pieces, the reporters that work for months on, on a story, the uh, small yet dedicated army of fact-checkers. How does all this sustain itself? I mean, I'm trying, the Jewish mother in me wants to ask, David, do you need any money? But really, I mean, <laughs> how is as this? As long as you're subscribing, you need work. <laughs> Just and don't I'm up the subscription I, is what I'm trying to say. I, I'll, I'll make it very qu- quick. Our business changed. In other words, um, in the, the Guardian business changed. It went from being a commercial newspaper to something based on a found. Well, it, it, it was based on a foundation from the start. No, it always was owned by a trust. Yeah, always. Yeah, and and something amazing happened in the Guardian more recently, which is to say, you would see at the bottom of articles, please also send some dough. And I thought, oh my god, this signals the end. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan. <laughs> Because people want what you do, they've come through, and that has stabilized the economics of the Guardian. Correct. I'm sure it, it has all kinds of. Yeah. The fact is, our media landscape has been decimated because, adver- for a number of reasons that you know, Craigslist first took away all the classified advertising from newspapers, particularly regional newspapers, local newspapers. Then the next step was Facebook and Google scooped up 80% of all the advertising everywhere. So I grew up in New Jersey. And the, every mayor of Newark, New Jersey, went to jail until Cory Booker, every single one. And why did that happen? I think some, no small part of that. You had rigorous journalism going on on a local level. And now that's harder to do. In fact, it's damn near impossible. There are all kinds of, you know, you know. But what you've had is that a, a small number of publications at the top, the New York Times um, is the most blatant example, have been basically able to say, look, advertising's dried up, but you, dear reader, particularly you, prosperous reader, um, need to pony up. If you want this thing at this level, I'm thrilled about the New Yorker's success. I'm thrilled that we're able to do what we're put on earth to do. What concerns me is who's going to send the corrupt judge to jail? Who's going to cover the coal industry in West Virginia? When you took the job as editor back in 1998, you were a you know prize-winning writer. Was there? Did you think, wow, I'm going to take the editor's chair? That means I'm going to give up, essentially being the reporter writer. But actually, as it's turned out, it's worked out fine, and you do both. Or, or did you know going in, I'm going to be able to keep both of these plates well, I spinning? Ke- I, 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 I haven't kept both of them. I do write from time to time, but they're mostly short things. And the thing that I really loved doing as a writer were deeply reported pieces. I did 
maybe once a year I've done something like that. As a, I have a complicated life. I, I can't get up and go take a vacation like a normal person. My, my wife and I have three kids and one of them is really v- very profoundly autistic. And so we can't just get on an airplane and go to France for a week for, for a break. It just doesn't, doesn't work. And so my way of getting away a little bit was, you know, to, <laughs> to come to Israel and report about the rise of Naftali Bennett. And, you know, uh, it's an odd life, but that's the one I've got. And I'm deeply privileged. Let me just ask you about two interviewees. I have to ask you this because sure. if I, a question in my mind when Leonard Cohen died was, who was um, the definitive or most Jewish artist of the 20th century. And in my mind, it was a competition between him and Philip Roth. And as it happened, <laughs> as it happened, you spent quality time sitting down with both of them. Yeah. And so I want to know what the, if you saw anything in the two people had in common, if there was some kind of golden thread between them, what might it have been? Talk. The love of talk. Leonard Cohen was the best storyteller and, and a real literary and spiritual searcher, very deeply Jewish, um, and at the same time had this kind of Buddhist uh, search, and he would go away for long periods and, and, and study and exist as a, as a Buddhist monk. Philip Roth is the opposite. Philip Roth was not, was, thought religion was ridiculous. And, but, of course, he was extremely interested in things Jewish. I mean, you know, read the books. Read Operation Shylock. Read almost anything, but yeah. that was that that cultural and um, he, religion just did not interest him one bit. Other things did. I think uh, I think your piece on Leonard Cohen is my favorite David Remnick. Ah, uh, well, it, it, you actually it's very kind of you, but he he did you need he did all the work. You know, sometimes <laughs> you do a piece and you you're you're squeezing it out and you're getting little bits from them and then you're. You're using your entire brain. I, three quarters of that piece, I, I think I used a tape recorder. But he did all the work. And you compared him to your mother, right? There's a, a whole paragraph in which he suggests food. There was like, a of bit all of food stripping. Say, like, there was a lot of, you know, would you like a bagel? <laughs> would you like a piece of herring? And there was a lot of that. He may just edge it. In my little competition in my head with Philip Roth, the fact that he was stripping you with food, I think maybe may, means that he wins that sort of celestial competition. I, I think it's quite possible. Between and, and 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 Leonard Cohen in 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 the annals of politics did one of the most sensible things I've ever heard of, which is to say, he died on election day before he knew the results. Yes, <laughs> I, uh, because he would he would have died all over again. I'm afraid. It brings me to ask a question that I hope will not put us uh, any of us uh, into deep depression. I mean, you've been a writer since what, like high school, basically, maybe since the before? 19th century. <laughs> Jonathan has been a writer, I suspect, since preschool. I'm writing for television. I know you both don't think that's writing, but just bear with me here on this question. You know, we have a great profession. It's standing in the sidelines and writing about the world. Does it matter, David? Does being a writer, is it it important? I I don't think necessarily my writing matters, but writing matters, and it, it matters to my life, not what I write, but what I read which is in, 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 immeasurably. My life would be just so much poorer without writing. I, it's just, it's all I do. And the act of writing is just, is, to me, is, is, is thinking, um, which is why I'm just okay at it. I, you know, but 
far, far bigger brains, I, 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 I just, it's not about reverence or revering or it's just, it, it is the very best, you know, the cliche, the very best of who we are on those shelves or in your Kindle or, or, or it's everything to me, everything. Did you say you're okay at it? You're just okay at it? I'm a, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the like first book won a Pulitzer Prize? Like, yeah, the prizes, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but does it, does it, does it, does it but the thing, thing I read into your next question there is whether it moves the needle or not. And what I mean by that is, take the example of Trump. We were all writing and writing and writing, and the New Yorker was publishing oh, brilliant, brilliant pieces dissecting Trump and leaving him in shreds, and still he gets elected anyway. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It can't do everything. It can't do everything. But it, 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 it's what we have. It's what we've got. And we also have images, and we have the reality of, the plain reality of television. Look, there are, I hate to say this, Jonathan, there are a lot of people who find that those politics attractive because of his ability to play into the um, resentments of a lot of people who feel either those similar hatreds or who feel left behind or feel left out um, or who feel that these people are getting, this group is getting a leg up on me and I'm, I'm somehow disadvantaged by it in the in the in the, what's seen as the um, zero sum game of economic life, and his ability to play into that was is can't be completely defeated by um, you know a, a swift sentence or or or, or well crafted paragraph or thought, but it's what we've got. Uh, I can't let you go without asking you. I mean, this has been definitely crazy, crazy yeah. two years. And I assume everyone has been working from home. I, you know, television, we were lucky enough to have still this newsroom and people still came to work. So you had the exchange of ideas or yelling of ideas because it's Israel, but you know what I mean. <laughs> how do you sort of, how does the New Yorker work if there's no physical presence of people in, in the office? Does it still work the same? Well, thankfully, you know, when, when, we, when we all went scurrying for home, in, in, in what was it, uh, you know, the winter of two years ago. I, we didn't know how we were going to do it, but it turned out that we had just enough technological uh, apparatus and know-how to get it together and we haven't missed a week or a day. But I, and there's been a lot of meetings, as we're on Zoom now, there's been a lot of that. And is there a happier moment in your life for, at some times when you press that little red leave button because <laughs> it's, it just ain't life. It's just not. And I, I, I fully expect that we'll, that we'll be changed by this experience and that work life will be more flexible and this will have touched our experience going forward. But I really do miss even crave, um, not just for the convenience of the manager, but just to crave, you know, three dimensional, conversation and, you know, the incidental conversations that happen in a newsroom or an office or in a theater or, or whatever. You know, even, even, in, even in hard times, the ability to see a friend who's sick or who's lost someone or to deal with life not on the telephone, not by text, not by Zoom is, um, I, I, you know, I can't wait. David, I'm not itching at all to reach for the red button. 
but um, we've kept you. <laughs> <laughs> We've kept you uh, a long time. This has been a wonderful conversation. It's and, a great pleasure, uh, and it's a great pleasure to listen to you both every week. We're really grateful. And we're so honored that you do. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you, David. Take care. So good to hear that again. David Remnick is just a, well, I mean, on top of being this fantastic editor and writer, former correspondent, he's obviously just a brilliant broadcaster as well. He's compelling and speaker. He's just compelling to listen to, I think. Um, and just so interesting talking about that generational shift, his worry about the next generation of American Jews. They just don't have that kind of connection with Israel, certainly, that he was uh, describing, and that he himself had felt. So I thought he was fascinating on that. And then you pushed him on some very interesting stuff about journalism itself and how that's, that is shifting. Well, yeah, you know what? I think what, what was really understood in that conversation, Jonathan, is that I uh, offered the editor of The New Yorker money. You didn't notice that, did you? <laughs> um, in the form of uh, an extra subscription, but still, I mean, I, obviously we were wondering about where journalism is going and how in this world you can still survive with a, a magazine that tries to keep those standards, right? The 20,000, 30,000 word pieces. I, again, was quite concerned. Uh, the things that he said about Israel, and you, you mentioned that, the younger generation, the fact that they're detached from this uh, country and what that means for the future of the country I live in. Obviously something to talk about more in our third season coming up uh, soon. But yes. Yeah, and also I think it's just always interesting, isn't it? It is worse than, you know, there's love, there's hate, but the worst thing, the most difficult thing to deal with is indifference. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he was talking about, just a disconnection, not following it, which I think there's been a lot of focus on people who oppose or against. What he was saying is this is a, a more difficult challenge is that a generation who just are switched off. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I some seem to recall, I don't want to send our uh, listeners to more homework, but I seem to recall uh, your beautiful response to David Badil when we talked about the same topic and he tried to say something about how he was, he's a non-Zionist. He doesn't want to mention or talk about Israel and you said to him, well, you can't do that because you're Jewish and this is the most important Jewish culture center of the world. I would urge people to go back to that uh, part of the conversation. So that was our conversation with uh, David Remnick. Next week, another one of our favorite conversations Keep enjoying your vacation, Jonathan. And to our listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in. And next week, another treat for you. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.